Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 14. And if you're following along the outline, the entire outline itself is entitled The Mandrake Affair. Uh, hopefully that'll make sense. I, I know it'll seem to make sense at the beginning, but I'm hoping it'll make a lot of sense when we get to the end of it. Uh, it is an odd set of verses that belong to this outline. So if you do have the outline, you might want to flip through it and, and just get familiar with that. It's not from the beginning of one chapter to the end of another. Uh, uh, it's somewhat imperfect that way. So I kind of like it a little better because of it. But if you'll turn there in Genesis 30, we're going to read verses 14, 15, and 16 to start with. And it says there, And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes. So immediately we get this mandrake. These Strong's refers to this mandrake as a, a love apple. It's uh, known for exciting sexual desire and favoring procreation. And that's very important to what comes next. So Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them unto his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. Now keep in mind, uh, Rachel has yet to have children of her own. She uh, did that whole little conspiracy with the handmaid, with the servant, last time we were together. But she hasn't actually given birth to any babies for Jacob at this time. She said unto her, it is, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? And wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? little confusing in the scripture, but this is Leah that is belonging to the pronoun she here in the translation. And Leah said unto her, Is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? Her reference here is to Jacob, of course, but Jacob's desire had always been more towards Rachel. Uh, he went in unto Leah. This is his wife. She's had children for him. But she desired, as we talked about with the names of those sons, to have her husband, to have him close, to have his love, to have his comfort in good times and in bad. And up until this point, Rachel has been the favored one of, of their husband. And Rachel said, Therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. And Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him, and said, Thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Sometimes humor finds a place in Scripture, and it's really hard to, it's really hard to look past. I mean, you look at that last verse. Jacob's been working in the field the whole day, and this is what he meets when he comes in. I, I don't know, I don't know what he's thinking, what he thought happened while he was gone, but for one wife to say that I've hired you with my son's mandrakes, I don't know that he was expecting that. I, I don't know that he could have possibly been ready for, for this um, transaction that took place while he was working. It's been a strange few years, right? If Reuben at this point is about seven years old, uh, Jacob's had babies with three of the four wives, continues to try to have a baby with Rachel, the fourth. Um, I don't want to be crude, but he's he's busy. Uh, I know I know. Speaking for the other few men that are in the room, that at the end of the day, with working, I like to go to one place and I like to rest. Uh, Jacob's being dictated to left and right over where he's going, what he's doing. Uh, the frequency of, of those trips, um, I don't even know how to make sense of what Jacob's life must have looked like at this point. So as I said, Reuben's about seven years old. He's in the wheat fields. He finds these mandrakes. They're small, orange-colored, berry-like fruit, which were esteemed in ancient times as an aphrodisiac and an inducer of fertility, as we said, from Strong's definition. 
And given what we've seen of Jacob's wives thus far, we can see why this discovery was of such great value, particularly to Rachel, but as a bartering tool for Leah. Dr. Henry Morris wrote, It had apparently been some time since Jacob had actually made love to his wife Leah, as he had been spending his nights with the two maids and with Rachel, whom he still loved most of all. Leah had, though after her first four sons were born, that she had thought after her first four sons were born that Jacob's love for her was assured, but now Rachel was more in favor again. So we see here a deal is struck. Um, I don't really want to spend a lot of time questioning Jacob's leadership of his home. I think we've pointed that out pretty clearly up to this point, but he had nothing to do with this deal except for he was what they valued. Rachel believed that with these mandrakes, she might bring forth children, so she agreed to send Jacob to Leah in exchange for Reuben's treasure. This is so incredibly ironic with what we're going to see at the conclusion of this outline. Uh, and if you want to study ahead, I, I, I'll just go ahead and give you the scriptures. If you go to the end of Genesis 30, uh, you'll, at some point in your own studies, you'll see what I mean. Uh, she took the magical fruit and gave up frequency. And I don't know how many couples in here have tried to have babies, but doctors generally would advise if you're trying to have one, frequency is pretty key. I've never had a doctor talk about a magical fruit. It's usually frequency. But Rachel gives up that opportunity with her husband to try for this fruit. This brings us right into the next few verses. Genesis 30, verses 17 through 21. God hearkened unto Leah. That's probably not what we expected to hear. She conceived and bare Jacob the fifth son. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire, because I have given my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Issachar, which means there's, there is a recompense, or there is recompense. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me, because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun, which means exalted. And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah, which means judgment. Now, we might say that the stratagem here did not go Rachel's way. And I got to point out just how many times we've seen this game, uh, this game of strategy and manipulation played since Jacob departed from Isaac's house. It's been a continual affair of bartering and dealing and uh, borderline witchcraft, if you will, as far as how we're going to make everything work out the way we want it to and doing everything possible except beseeching the Lord. We do the same. We do the exact same. It is obvious that Jacob did not have a spiritual home. His wives disagreed. Essentially, they are waging now a psychological war, and they used him as a pawn in their plans. Rachel even had an interest in idols, which we'll see in the next chapter. In Genesis 31:19, we read, And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. So we see a little bit more of Laban's uh, rich history uh, in idolatry as well. We continue to read of no altar in his house, no mention of prayer, speaking of Jacob's house. And the sad results are not difficult for us to see. The only member of the household that seems to have reverence for God here is Leah. See how this particular set of verses starts, and God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived. 
We see again fruitfulness. We see only one reverencing God, and we see God hearkening unto her. So this means that she uh, likely beseeched the Lord like Rebecca did back in the day. She likely went in unto God and asked for his favor or his deliverance or his mercy or a miracle like we might do yet today. This is also seen in the name for this first round of children. Issachar means recompense or reward. It's very likely that part of her prayer, at least, was for Jacob to spend more time with her, which from the text listing further children, we can tell that he likely did. The Mandrake affair didn't go as well as Rachel had hoped. Jacob now has ten sons and at, at least one daughter, Dinah, also coming from Leah. Later, Jacob had other daughters, but the only one whose name and whose mother's name is given is Dinah. And we see in Genesis 37, 35, it says, All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Again, later, Genesis 46, verse 7, it says, His sons and his son's sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. Later in that same chapter, verse 15, these be the sons of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob and Pandanaram with his daughter Dinah. All the souls of his sons and his daughters were 30 and 3. And we'll see more of Dinah when we get to chapter 34. But as we keep chugging along through Genesis 30, uh, consider, if you will, verses 22 through 24. And God remembered Rachel. Something's changed here. We're not blessed with seeing what it is, but something's changed here because God remembered Rachel and hearkens unto her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, means Jehovah has added and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. There's something very significant here without jumping way to the end of Genesis. Joseph, before Joseph was even born, kind of had the same experience up to his arrival, did he not? Uh, manipulation, uh, conniving here, there, and everywhere, almost trying to keep him from coming at times. And yet Joseph arrives, what was meant for ill, even here, God made to be a blessing. Prayers are heard for Rachel. Prayers work, folks. I mean, we've, we've seen that. We've seen miracles here in just the last six months. A baby rests in the hospital this very hour that we've prayed for multiple times since hearing that he was coming. God's still working, and we're still here. We know that to be true, and we know that when he uh, concludes his work with us, he'll come take us home. He won't leave us here for one minute without his will. Prayers are heard here for Rachel, and this is the only place for which blessings are poured forth. This was not due to the mandrakes that had been eaten a few years earlier at this point, and we know that because of the multiple children that had been born. It was not because it was fair or it was her turn or because she struck a deal or gave over a handmaid. It was the power of God to bless in his time. We mentioned last time about how he is deserving of praise. Even in the, the illest of times, even in the worst events and the worst consequences, God is worthy to be praised. Man is absolutely not. 
most of our downfalls, most of our pitfalls are results of us trying to do things. Man's efforts will only prove his depravity, will only prove his ever-evil imagination. And it doesn't start at a young age. It starts at birth. It's inherited. We've got one screaming halfway through the message and two others running around playing with trains in the middle of the sermon. Depravity is ever-present in the hearts of man. Uh, this, doesn't, this isn't something we grow out of. Uh, Steve, without the grace of God, you'd be playing trains with them. I would too. Wouldn't be here at all. And there's quite a few who aren't. Depravity, folks, is real. It's something to be struggled with. And what we're just starting to see in that main service message on Sunday was we go into the armor. I pray that it's made more clear just what we're up against. Just what we're dealing with here. I mean, if, if you flip through the highlights of the news in the last 24 hours, you'd probably think this Asbury thing is not the worst news you've seen all day. By the way, they blame President Trump for the train wreck in Ohio. It took less time than I thought it would, but they did. You'd probably think that was worse than this Asbury thing. But the Asbury thing is a representation of spiritual warfare. It's a representation of what we're all dealing with. What is ever-present, even right now, in the hearts of men. It can't be overcome with deals or mandrakes. There's no sacrificial lambs that you're going to put forward that'll take this away. Now, at this time, sterility was considered to be a divine reproach. And this is what she's talking about, having her reproach removed. So we can imagine the humility Rachel had learned in this period of time in which her older sister's having babies and the handmaids are all having babies. Uh, I, I just have to imagine in the context of everything that she can hear those babies cry. She can hear her nephews and her niece cry in the, in the, in the evening. And any in here who have gone through a season without children, you know how hard that is. When you want it so bad, and you can hear it, it's ever-present, and envy creeps in. And this is where we've seen Rachel up until this outline. It, it was magnified when the Mandrake affair started because Rachel thought she was getting the upper hand. But God doesn't deal with upper hands, does he? There's no upper and lower hand. There's depravity and there's deliverance. But there is no upper hand. There, there's no uh, overly convincing tool or mechanism in which man's going to find one day to persuade God one iota. There's depravity and there's deliverance. And without deliverance, there's only depravity. It was an occasion of great joy and thankfulness for her when this reproach seemingly was removed. Joseph, according to Strong's, means Jehovah has added, but it can also be translated, may he add. Or even may he take away, as she was referring to the reproach, reproach being taken away. So at this point for Jacob, with four wives producing 11 or 12 children up to this point, unless there's daughters that aren't named up to this point, it's likely that Jacob by this time had more than fulfilled his contract with Laban. In fact, it's stated in Genesis 31 verse 38, This 20 years have I been with thee, Jacob says, Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of, the, of thy flock have I not eaten. The first seven were without children. 
So the kids above were all born in 13 years at most. The point being, Jacob's debt to Laban was most definitely paid in full by the time Joseph was born. And that's significant for us to try and remember. You might even want to write that in the margins uh, in your Bible if you mark up your Bibles. Without Laban's contracts looming over him for the first time in 20 years, Jacob found himself with nothing but a large family to show for it. He was also anxious to get home again. He had not been there in 20 plus years. We do not see in the scriptures... Uh, anything that would lead us to believe that Jacob had heard anything from his father's home in this time. Remember, he fled because Esau threatened to, uh, at the end of his mourning, to take his brother's life. Nothing of his beloved mother, Rebekah, his near-death father, Isaac, or his fuming brother, Esau, in that time. Now, look with me, if you will, at verses 25 through 28, and, and this outline really keeps moving, so I apologize if it feels like we're going a little fast, but um, these events are all connected, so I do want to try and keep them together the best we can. Verse 25, and it came to pass, so a time of period of some sort has passed, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, send me away, that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go. For thou knowest my service, which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. Laban almost sounds like he's referring to Jacob as a type of totem, a good luck charm. Um, a man who's worked so hard for just clearing out Laban's household of daughters and making sure the livestock's tended to. We heard earlier he was in the wheat field, so he's caring for uh, more than just animals here. And he asked Laban to send him away. However, the crafty Syrian was not about to lose such a valuable son-in-law, such a valuable employee, if you will. Jacob had worked 14 years for his two wives. Now he could work for the cattle he would need in order to get established on his own. And, and there's some conniving here as well. Laban would not have loved this suggestion perhaps in part to seeing his daughters and grandchildren depart but what was uh, what seems to be emphasized the most in this text is the impact of losing Jacob's service we don't read a whole lot here about Laban saying please don't take my grandbabies away he's more concerned about the service Jacob has provided of course, Laban covered the evil motive of his plan by using the Lord's name in verse 27, which is, is interesting. Uh, he says, I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. Uh, this is a lesson that's been kind of circling Laban his, most of his life as his sister went and followed the faithful servant and married Isaac, and she was well taken care of. Uh, but now he claims to be learning things. He cl claims to be having experiences that are educating him. And he asked Jacob to choose terms. He says, name your wages, and I will give it there in verse 28. Now Laban's comment, I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed, is very interesting for us to think about for a moment. The Hebrew word means literally learned by enchantments. So it's likely the idol worship of his own was some uh, of some kind of mystic sort. I don't know how idol worship that he's involved in worked i don't know how it confirmed for him that 
um, that Jacob was a good thing. It seems like math would do that because Jacob's been taking care of a lot of things for many years. Uh, but the terminology that he uses here points more towards a, a mysticism of sorts. The Lord will permit a person to trust in such things. If you're here and you're dabbling with such things, he may permit it for a season. He, he won't prefer it. He won't support it. He won't reward it. But he might permit it for a season. I would urge you to repent. Uh, most seasons that I have uh, experienced tend to end not too long after you've heard the truth from a pulpit. Uh, and those who have been around longer than me can speak to it better, but... Just about every time I've been involved in something I shouldn't be involved in, I don't have too long after the truth's been preached to me from a pulpit to repent of it before the Lord makes it real clear that it was me he was talking to. So repent of such things. Come away from such things. You have God. You don't need mysticism. If you have God, you don't need idols. You only need God. He provides for your every need. He knows the heart. He will even allow at times for prosperity, kindness, and happiness to be experienced. He will, however, never, as I said, bless it. He will never be honored by it. He will never be able to truly worship. You will never be able to truly worship him by such things. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. He does not seek to be replaced. He does not seek to be deceived, which is my concern over the Asbury thing that we mentioned at the start of the evening. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. A, a, a claiming of the spirit without truth is like the old uh, 49ers uh, mining for gold and staking claims on land that wasn't truly theirs just because they were standing on it. Using the right words doesn't give you the claim to be a Christian. Doesn't mean that you know God. All will know God. There will come a day when there will be no doubt who God is and how powerful and how mighty and how worthy of praise God is. Let us now look at verses 29 through 34. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me, this is Jacob speaking, for it, was, uh, for it was little which thou hast before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude, and the Lord hath blessed me, or hath blessed thee since my coming. So Jacob's kind of setting things right here. Um, he's, been, he's pointing out to Laban that you've been blessed more than a little, and the Lord that you speak of that has given you understanding uh, has most definitely been involved, and, and it's a bit of a relief, honestly, to read Jacob um, giving thanks to the Lord, even into this degree. And then he says, And now when shall I provide for mine own house also? He says, I have nothing. And Laban says, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. I wonder if he gave a car salesman toothy grin. Uh, when he eagerly accepted that deal. 
Jacob says, For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. Similar to what the Lord had done for Jacob's wives, we see Jacob acknowledging that God had done it for the meager flocks during his time there. He had definitely uh, blessed uh, in, in the realm of fertility uh, his wives. Though Rachel didn't have as many as she desired to have for her husband, uh, Jacob wasn't short of children. Laban asked, but Jacob refused a gift. This was Laban's snare. I'll give you a gift. I'll give you my daughter. I'll give you my other daughter. This was a snare, essentially a plot of Satan's to continue to corrupt that house, to continue to keep Jacob in servitude to Laban a bit longer. But Jacob refused a gift. The last time he accepted Laban's gift, he was deceived, back in Genesis 29, verse 19. Jacob offered to work as Laban's shepherd if Laban would give him the rejects of the flocks and the herds. Oriental sheep are, are white and goats brown or black. By accepting the striped, spotted, and speckled animals, Jacob was apparently giving Laban the better deal. Laban would have been willing to make almost any bargain to keep Jacob working for him, but this one would have been too enticing to walk away from for sure. And Laban said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. This is a significant sign of growth for Jacob here. Jacob at this point had been given quite a few things. Um, kind of hearkening back to Leah saying, you, I've, I've purchased you, I've hired you for the evening. But all the way back to his youth, as the, the, his mother kind of hatched the plan for what needed to happen to get the blessing away from his brother, it was given to him, was it not? So Jacob is in a situation now that um, he seems to have a bit of maturity. All that we have seen of him up to this point has not shown us a man who would hesitate to have yet one more thing given to him. Perhaps he's starting to see that God is indeed able to provide for him. And maybe we've seen that in our own walks where uh, the Lord's teaching us a lesson. I don't want to say trying to. He's teaching. We're not listening most of the time. But if he's teaching a lesson, we keep seeing that lesson in everything if we're paying attention. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that's had that experience where it seems like we're just getting nuggets of understanding from this and from this and from this. And it's compiled together to have a more perfect understanding because our God cares for us like a shepherd. And he continues to take that crook Throughout our days, though, all the events of our days might seem to be disconnected, they are connected for God. And he continues to guide us and to direct us and to move us according to his will. Here is the payment or the scheme that's suggested by Jacob. He agreed that none of the solid color animals would be taken into his own flocks. He refers to it as stolen. If you find that with my flocks, then you can count it as being stolen with me. If any should be found by Laban and Jacob's flocks, Laban would have the right to take them out. Only those future animals that would be born speckled or striped or spotted or abnormally colored in some way would, have, uh, would become Jacob's wages. The dominant color traits in Laban's flocks and herds were evidently white among the sheep, black among the goats, and brown among the cattle. Most of the animals were of these colors, but there were a few that were spotted and speckled among the cattle and goats and brown among the sheep. And it was of such as these that Jacob 
uh, Jacob's pay would be, but it's of all the future offspring, not of what's currently out there, not of what Jacob is already familiar with and, and having worked with. And Henry Moore speaks of this and says, Jacob further proposed that not only would none of these living speckled animals be taken by him, but they would not even be used for breeding purposes. He would separate them into a separate flock and keep them away from the normal colored animals. Only such spotted and specked, specked, speckled animals as would be born in the future from the normal colored animals would become his. Since the solid colored animals were by far the more numerous, and since it was much less likely that he would uh, bear striped animals, bear striped and speckled offspring than those animals that were already striped and speckled or brown among the sheep, this arrangement clearly was highly favorable to Laban and of very doubtful value to Jacob. And Morris continues on to state that this was an act of faith on Jacob's part. He's putting himself at the Lord's mercy entirely. Doesn't make logical sense to man. Laban loves it. Sounds great to him. I do not deny that to, to be the case, but, beloved, we have to take note that everything in Jacob's life had always been up to God's mercy. This is not the first time everything in its entirety is up to the mercy of God. Everything in Jacob's life had always been toward the mercy of God. And you are as well. Uh, even if you're here and you don't know him, it is only by the mercy of God you take your next breath. Everything falls under the mercy of God. For Laban, of course, the, the answer was simple. Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. And to ensure that these odds would be in favor, we read that he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt him and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. We see that in verses 35 and 36 of this chapter. Which brings us to verse 37 through 43, our last section. Uh, and I do want to push through this uh, if we can so you can see the connection here. So we see in verse 37, And Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree and pilled or peeled white strakes in them and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks and the gutters and the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle, ringstrakes, speckled and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ringstrakes and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not unto Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive. Which Henry Morris says, the original Hebrew word here, yakum, uh, means to be hot. This, this word conceive means to be hot. So they were to be hot or conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased ex exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses and children. Of course, that last part's not in the scripture, but you've seen already. He's got a lot of them too. In verse 9 of the following chapter, we read, Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. This was the words of Jacob. 
the special rods and sticks at the troughs probably did not influence the sheep. It was God who determined what kind of sheep and goats would be conceived. However, Jacob did use selective breeding, and, and we see that in this text, so that only the stronger cattle conceived. He didn't try to entice or influence the weak. He left those for Laban. But when the stronger ones came forward, those to be desired of, a, of one who owns cattle and is looking to farm cattle, he tried to motivate them, so to speak. This being said, remember that we're not dealing with cavemen. Jacob is not a, a ugh. He's not a caveman wearing the, the skins of woolly mammoths. He is industrial at best. He knows what he's doing. And not only has he taken care of Laban's stuff for years, he took care of his father's before that. So he knows what he's doing. He's a very intelligent man. He kept his father's uh, flocks for decades. Again, he's now worked at least two decades with Laban's. In his experience, he'd observed what is referred to now as the Mendelian genetics. And Dr. Henry Morris defines this as follows, because I'm not smart enough to know what that means. He says, even though a species of animal may have certain dominant traits, such as the white color in this type of sheep, they are in each generation, there are in each generation certain individual animals that manifest one or more recessive traits, such as the brown color among the sheep. Furthermore, actual physical vigor and usefulness for man's needs are quite independent of this matter of coloration. He knew that if he would then use these for future breeding in the flock, this would increase their number still more. A certain proportion of the solid color animals he knew would be uh, homozygous, and if mated with other homozygous animals, would bear only solid color offspring. The heterozygous animals, which did contain in some proportion the genes for off-colored progeny, would be the ones which would have to supply his own future flocks. But by selective breeding, he could eventually develop a flock of predominantly spotted and speckled animals. And you can tell by the size of those words, I didn't make any of that up. That was Dr. Henry Morris. Uh, and it's still from the Genesis record that we've been using all along that I'm pulling these quotes. So why did I include this section under the Mandrake Affair outline? Isaac lear or Isaac, Jacob learned this from somewhere. We know that Leah literally brought it to him when he came in from the field one day. My son Reuben's mandrakes were sold in exchange for you tonight. He'd seen this before. So I figure it fits all right under the Mandrake Affair because it's kind of the similar process, this influencing that we see here. It's possible even that these branches of poplar, hazel, and chestnut trees served as, uh, at the very least, a type of aphrodisiac and fertility promoter. Henry Morris even points out that at least one such chemical substance found in these trees has been used for such a purpose in both ancient and modern times. Again, Jacob's not a caveman. Jacob had observed animals his entire life. And I'm not talking about his wives. I'm talking about the actual animals he's worked with. But he's also seen this on display with his wives. He knew the business. He knew these flocks. He also knew that though it might be likely that just as much of this offspring might benefit Laban, the more there were to reproduce, the better, statistically. It would be for him as well. The more babies that are coming from these animals, the more likely that there's going to be some for him as well. Perhaps this is something he learned from this household business with the sister wives that he had married. 
How many other ways could Jacob have 11 to 12 kids in such a short amount of time? We also learn from chapter 31, verses 7 and 8, that Laban changed the terms of the contract several times. I'm going to read that for you in just a minute. As he saw Jacob's flocks increasing. Laban's trying to game the system. He, he thought it was in his favor to begin with, and then when it didn't seem to be going his way, he tried to change everything. But God overruled Laban and made Jacob a wealthy man. Listen to Genesis 31, verses 7 through 8. Your father hath deceived me, Jacob says, and changed my wages ten times. But God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be thy wages, then all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus, the ring strict shall be thy iron, then bear all the cattle ring strict. If we are to infer that Jacob was being deceitful in his dealings with Laban, then we see that these concluding results glorify God all the more. It still worked out exactly how God had intended for it to. The tender love and mercy and long-suffering or patience of God how else can we describe his withstanding the constant attempts at manipulation on the part of his elect? Uh, all 30 chapters, the first 30 chapters of this book, we've seen at least three wives try to game the system to help God. We've seen multiple husbands uh, prefer violence and prefer rebellion rather than God. We've seen faithful men such as Abraham flee in the face of a famine. Uh, and on and on and on we go. In just a short time, likely four or five years, Jacob's flock had grown so large and he had proposed uh, and, and he had prospered from it so greatly that he had to employ many servants and had purchased many camels, many asses. He had very quickly become a very prosperous ranger or rancher, rather, though he rarely looked for God's involvement during this season. This is the same Jacob who very soon will bow his knee before him and acknowledge, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. We'll see that in Genesis 32, verse 10. Jacob is maturing. He's not where he needs to be. Neither am I. Maybe you're not there yet either. But Jacob recognizes by Genesis 32, 10, that he's not worthy of any of the mercies that God had showed him in a lifetime, in a lifetime of dealings with Laban, his wives, his children, uh, other, other ranchers, other people in the land, not worthy of a single mercy that God had shown him. I pray the Lord reveals unto us this night that we're also right there. We also don't deserve a lick of mercy, a lick of favor. Not one iota of grace is owed unto us. That might seem like a disparaging place to, to end a message, a horrible place to, to rest for the evening. But he is our all in all. If he isn't, he's not ours at all. We have to recognize that. Jacob is brought to that place. And many of us stubborn Simon Peter and Jacob-like people will also have to be brought to that place. I pray that it is a merciful journey. I pray that if you don't know the Lord, that maybe this will be the last night that you can say that. I pray that uh, come this Sunday, the Lord will reveal miracles in this little church, broken hearts that have been mended, faithful servants looking to obey. He's capable of that. There's no miracle he's not capable of. Do we pray with such esteem? 
Do we pray with such hope, such faith that God is able? Because he is.